Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Iowa Week, and school is in session. All week long, we're focusing on our K-12 public schools. Today, we'll find out who got us here. We'll talk about state-level policy and funding decisions that have shaped our schools and talk about how our public schools are performing today. Spoiler alert, we're doing better than you might think. But first, Iowa's public schools, like public schools everywhere in the United States, have been shaped by national movements. Chris Ogren is a professor of educational policy and leadership studies and an educational historian at the University of Iowa. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Wonderful to have you here. And of course, public schools can vary and do vary from state to state and from community to community. But the public school system in Iowa and everywhere in the United States has been shaped by some really powerful national movements. And we're going to start today in the 1960s with some really important changes that took place. So tell me, what what was going on with education in the 1960s? Well, in thinking specifically about the national or federal level, um, as the 1960s began, the federal government actually had very little to do with education. There was sort of informal national education policy dating back to the mid-19th century through the National Education Association, which was more of a group of administrators than a teacher's union like it is now. And the federal government had begun to support vocational education in the 1910s. But other than that, the federal government really wasn't involved. It was a state and local issue. But with Lyndon Johnson's administration and his Um, initiatives called the Great Society to support civil rights in the U.S., the federal government began to get more involved in education, Um, specifically beginning in 1964 um, with Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that said federal funds would be withdrawn from any institutions that supported um, discrimination or segregation. And then a big moment in um, education policy was the passage in 1965 of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, or ESEA, that had five titles, but the first one was the most important, and it provided money for schools serving low-income students through the federal government. So there was actual federal government money going into most schools, because they defined it pretty widely so that most schools would would qualify. Then a series of acts supported various elements of civil rights in schools. The Bilingual Education Act in 1968, Title IX, which has just celebrated its 50th anniversary. And a lot of people think of that as just being about sports, but it was actually about all sorts of regulations so that schools would not discriminate against girls. Um, and then Public Law 94-142 in 1975 was also called the Education of All Handicapped Children Act. And that was revolutionary in that it required schools to be open to students with disabilities and to provide the least restrictive environment for students with disabilities. So these are federal rules 
aimed at increasing equity and civil rights in the schools. And this is really a big change. And that's how the federal government became more involved in education. Still, federal funding was only less than 10% of school funding, but that was an important 10% for the schools. And so it made them comply. Right. And uh, so we're, we're talking about the civil rights movement. We're talking about the war on poverty as well. So this equity issue for all students in the United States. And before that time, I mean, schools and the level of education that a student could get in a public school in their community varied wildly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and often um, schools would avoid like serving students with disabilities, especially just, you know, send them off somewhere else or not welcome them. So it's huge. But there were limits. I want to tell you about one Supreme Court decision because it does show the limits to some of this. That decision was in 1973 called San Antonio School District v. Rodriguez. Um, and they, the people in San Antonio had brought suit against the use of using property taxes to fund schools. And they said, this isn't fair. This isn't equitable education. It um, violates our right to equal education. And the Supreme Court said, no, we can go ahead with using property taxes. And so schools were allowed to remain unevenly funded because of the use of property taxes. So it wasn't that these measures in the 1960s and early 70s just changed everything, but there were huge changes in terms of federal involvement. It, it also feels like the beginning of a continuum that continues to today because equity in schools is something that we continue to talk about and try to work toward. It's not like it, it was fixed in right, the 1960s right. and 70s. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then it, it's interesting to me... Um, the timing of this, once schools were sort of mandated to be more careful about serving all students, people began to be more concerned about the quality of education. So in some ways you could say, yeah, because more students were there, more students were taking the SAT exam, for example. So there was concern about a drop in average SAT scores. But it's like, well, more people and more diverse people are taking the SAT so a landmark study um, by a national commission appointed by Secretary of Education Terrell Bell published A Nation at Risk in 1983, and it, it made a big splash. And their argument was that U.S. schools were failing to meet the need for a well-trained workforce. And in the 80s, the big concern was um, competition in technology, especially with Japan. Right. That's when we were starting to see all the auto imports. Exactly. And all of the, the yeah. computers and the video games and all of that. And seeing that maybe economically we're not going in the same direction as Japan. And so, so that's an interesting contrast. And we'll talk about this a little later on in the hour, too. But at the same time that schools in the United States were getting better at serving all students, there's the beginning of this fear that, wait, if we're serving all students, are we still serving the elite students yeah. that we, quote, need to right. get ahead? Right. And so um, they began publishing reports about U.S. students not doing as well um, on standardized tests internationally. And there were a lot of concerns. So what this touched off was this concern about standards and a standards movement 
which soon became an accountability movement that focused on testing. So I think it's important to understand that in the context of what had begun in the 1960s with federal involvement, but now by the 1990s, we have um, America 2000 during the first Bush administration, um, which was actually passed in 1989, Goals 2000 during the Clinton administration, all calling for more accountability and higher standards in schools. And they began to focus on testing. And of course, this movement culminated in 2002 with the passage of No Child Left Behind, or NCLB. And that was actually a reauthorization of ESEA, which I mentioned which was goes passed back in 1965. Right. Okay. So these reauthorizations and NCLB said that accountability would come mainly through testing, mainly in reading and math. And the expectation was that all students would be proficient by 2014. Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but the focus was, in some ways, it used a lot of equity language because it said all students. We are really going to serve all students. But the focus was on testing. And many people in the education field felt that it, it uh, to the detriment of schools, focused everyone on those tests. Um, and then the Obama, Obama administration in Race to the Top in 2009 required that schools evaluate teachers according to the test scores of their students. Um, Race to the Top was a voluntary thing for schools, and it was a competition for funding. So it's not that all schools had to evaluate teachers based on test scores, but the idea was there. Right. Well, and, and I can see push and pull with No Child Left Behind and with Race to the Top. There's uh, the threat of penalties if you don't meet these standards, but it sounds like Race to the Top was more of an effort to create a carrot or a reward mm -hmm. system for the schools that that did meet or exceed those standards. And this is a really this is a, a bipartisan effort, mm -hmm. you can see, yeah. to to make our schools better at serving all students. But we haven't really figured out how to do that, yeah. have we? <laughs> yeah. And so it was, you know, a lot of people say you don't make someone better by taking their temperature over and over again. And in some ways that was the approach, the testing over and over again. And there were um Scandals in school districts as they discovered uh, cheating on the tests. And I think a lot of the teachers were felt in pretty desperate straits that they were going to be evaluated according to their students' test scores. The Los Angeles Times at a certain point, I don't remember what year, published scores by teachers' names in the paper. And it was hugely stressful for those teachers. And, of course, we know there's so many factors that go into a student's test score that evaluating a teacher or a school based on test scores is, is problematic in many ways. Yeah. We only have about a minute left to talk. And um, at this point in time, of course, we're still seeing equity challenges. Uh, we just had the Biden administration issue a ruling that Title IX also applies to LGBTQ students. That is a, an area that will continue to see developments mm -hmm. in. What do you think the, the biggest issue right now in 30 oh. seconds is that, that federal policy is facing with our public schools? I don't feel qualified as a historian to yeah. answer that question. But I'll say just really quickly that another part of the carrot stick with all these um, new requirements 
was that if schools weren't up to snuff, that students could transfer to other schools. And so school choice and um, charter schools all are intertwined with, with these developments. And in the 90s, when it all began, it wasn't as prominent in Iowa, but it has become more prominent in Iowa. All right. And guess what? That's what we're talking about yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> well, good. A good lead in. These right. are really important. And just quickly, too, NCLB was reauthorized in 2015 as the Every Student Succeeds Act. So technically, we're not under NCLB anymore, but it's there's more flexibility, but it's a lot of the same kind of policy. Chris Ogren, thank you so much thank for being you. here today. <laughs> Educational historian Chris Ogren with the University of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Iowa Week, and school is in session. All week long, we're focusing on K-12 public schools in our state. And now we've talked about national movements that have shaped our schools. But states have a great deal of influence over what goes on in their public schools. And we're going to start this part of the story in the 70s and 80s, when Iowa schools were frequently touted as number one in the nation, one of the best school systems. Margaret Buckton is here. She is a partner at Iowa School Finance Information Services, executive director of Urban Education Network, and a professional advocate with Rural School Advocates of Iowa. Margaret, welcome back. Thank you, Charity. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I do want to go back now to the 1970s and the 1980s. And I grew up in the 1980s. And boy, did we hear over and over again that Iowa schools were the best in the nation. We were number one in the nation. So um, whether or not that's verifiable, uh, tell me a little bit about what was going on with Iowa schools in the 1980s that made it possible for us to make that claim. Well, you bet, Charity. So um, I was looking back at the the funding formula and how resources got to schools. And um, thinking back at that same time, of course, I was educated in the 60s and 70s, so maybe a little more history than you have. But um, when I look back at that, especially when Governor Ray was in office between 69 and 83, Iowa actually spent more than the national average per student on education. And uh, when we think of those economic systems and that 80% of the funding actually pays for people, that meant that we had a really good workforce. We had great teachers. We invested in all of the supports that students needed. Um, And the other thing that we had at that time was the Iowa Test of Basic Skills, which came out of Iowa. And our students had practice in taking those reading and math tests. And so when those kinds of tests were delivered across the country, um, I think our students were proficient in those. So let's uh, let's contrast that. You said we spent more per student than the national average in the 1980s. Just give us a marker. Where are we today compared to the national average on per pupil spending? 
Right. So um, I, I just looked this up in May of 2022. The information came out from the census data, and it looks at the 1920 school year. That's the most recent number that we have. And it shows Iowa spending $1,536 less than the national average on education, and that's about 11 percent less. Wow. OK, so that that feels significant. Yeah, I agree completely. And it's and especially because in education, we buy people. Uh, we buy all of the staff, the support, the counselors, librarians, um, the, the social workers, as well as uh, the great teachers that provide all the program for students. So tell me a little bit about how this has happened, uh, how, how we got from there to here as we, we really chipped away at resources for schools. Sure. So so back in those early years, the 70s and 80s, um, most of our education funding came from local communities. And <clears throat> when the finance formula was uh, first created in the mid-70s and then retooled again in the mid-80s, there's been an increasing shift away from local property taxes and more state funding. And with that, there's come several iterations of school quality improvements. And, and we think of Governor Branstead in his first term. Um, He had what was called the Educational Excellence Plan, and it had three phases. Uh, Phase one and two dealt with teacher pay. Increasing minimum teacher pay was phase one, and increasing career or experience teacher pay was phase two. And then phase three of that was actually an investment in professional development or teacher training. But that's not all that happened there. There was also the creation of two other funding streams, the Instructional Support Levy and dropout prevention, and both of those could be accessed by local school boards to provide services for increasing school quality and also serving the needs of our more at-risk students. So those all kind of happened under the first um, Branstead administration. All right. And, and we really do need to look at the two Branstead administrations separately because policies changed pretty dramatically from from one to the next. So during that time, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to measure quality of education, but those sound like significant investments in our schools. They were. And the other interesting thing about them is even though it was mandated uh, minimum pay for teachers, there was a feeling of a lot of local control, locally controlled standards providing uh, for students what the local school board and community uh, expected from the educational program. Let's uh, move on to Terry Branstad's successor, Tom Vilsack. You bet. So when um, when Governor Vilsack uh, kind of took the stage in education reform, um, two things that I remember him talking about a lot. One of those was class size, um, and the other was uh, kind of building on the Ed Excellence Program, but it was termed the Student Achievement Teacher Quality Act, and again made investments in beginning teacher pay uh, under teacher salary supplement, which now is part of our formula permanently, also a professional development supplement, but there was a little more requirement that this time it be tied to the learning goals, the student achievement goals of the school district and the and the school, the attendance center. And I think that was a direct reflection of some of what our historian Chris was talking about, that that emphasis on, um, on test scores and equity. 
Um, another interesting part of that was the early intervention class size program um, that dedicated about $30 million to lowering class size or improving reading instruction in kindergarten through third grade. So that was an early investment up front. And then building on that early, although he started talking about it, it didn't happen until his successor was in office. But he was a big advocate of universal preschool, making sure that that students got that early investment as four-year-olds. So how was the funding shifting during that time? I mean, we talk about these policies, and these were policies that did have bipartisan support, right? Yes, correct. So there were there were Republicans and Democrats in charge of the House and Senate, respectively, during Governor Vilsack's administration. And there were some compromises there. So, for example, there was a, a little known thing called market factor pay that the Republicans wanted in that program that said school districts could provide incentives for hard to staff shortage area positions. And uh, we were starting to see that that um, difficulty in some areas, whether that's rural areas or math and science subjects and attracting teachers. And during this time, there was also an emphasis on providing some property tax relief through the formula. So talented and gifted funding that used to be all local property taxes became state funded. And there were several of those iterations where they chipped away at how much was coming to the school district from local property taxes. And now, um, fast forward, we're very heavily state funded compared to the rest of the country. And that movement to uh, provide some property tax relief, was that driven by equity goals because some communities had higher property taxes and had better schools? I would say it's half driven by equity goals. And so we've seen some fixes in the formula that help correct for the places that have very low property value supporting each student. And some of those are urban centers like uh, Sioux City is would be the poster child for that, but also some rural areas, especially in the southern tier of Iowa. And so part of the formula made those kinds of adjustments so that that those taxpayers in those areas wouldn't have to pay an extraordinarily high rate. And it's worked pretty well. Without the formula, the school tax rate in Sioux City would be over $65 per thousand of assessed valuation, and it's under 20 now. Mm. All right. I, I would also yeah. say, Charity, though, Charity, though that, that part of that has just been the economic forces of being an agricultural state with um, heavy business influences. And there have been many ways to promote property tax relief. But when the legislature chose to provide it, if it goes through the school foundation formula, they know that impacts every single taxpayer. So it's a, it's a convenient vehicle for lowering property taxes. And we've seen that um, implemented over time. Moving a little bit forward in time, of course, Tom Vilsack was in office through January of 2007, and he was succeeded by Chet Culver. 2007, this is a pivotal moment in our nation's history. It's uh, 2006 is when that housing bubble burst, and then there was a cascade of, of other things that led us into a deep national recession. How did that affect schools in Iowa? Um, well, first of all, I want to talk about a couple of the successes because Governor Culver signed that bill, which created the state penny for school infrastructure. It's known as the SAVE Fund. I love how they make up acronyms, the Secure and Advanced Vision for Education Fund. So you could use the word SAVE for the yeah. acronym. But that now has uh, delivered over $1,000 per student to school districts for infrastructure and technology and equipment, um, buses, and uh, non-instructional software. All of those expenses... Um, 
that either local property taxpayers had to pay for or came out of the school general fund. And that has been a game changer. We don't know of any other state that has that kind of investment. Um, And that, again, was a bipartisan initiative. Um, Through that also was the Property Tax Equity and Relief Fund, which dedicated about $24 million to lowering the property taxes in those very property-poor districts. So again, worked on that equity theme. And the other thing in the beginning of Governor Culver's administration was the creation of the statewide voluntary preschool program, um, and through the years got up to about 33,000 four-year-olds served in preschool. We were, I believe, the third state in the country to have a universal preschool program. So those were early in the administration, and then that bubble hit, and then we had the economic downturn. Um, it's a it's a misnomer of uh, school funding that when the state withholds state aid through an across-the-board cut, their schools are really penalized. Um, and I think that makes a convenient talking point for those who want to deliver lower funding and keep those promises. Uh, but Governor Culver used that ability for the across-the-board cut to withhold state aid from schools, and schools had cash reserves that they could continue to pay their teacher contracts and fund education. And then that money was redirected into other essential state services. So a few years later, um, I think Iowa came out on the bright side of that. But at that time, we were certainly in a lot of turmoil. Sure. All right. And that leads us to um, Governor Branstad running again, getting elected again, coming back for second uh, administration that lasted from 2011 through 2017. Uh, We talked about his earlier focus. How were things different? Sure. So um, instead of the Ed Excellence Program that was later called Student Achievement Teacher Quality Program, in uh, Governor Branstad's second term, he focused on teacher leadership. And there was the Ed Reform Bill in 2013 that created these career paths for teachers, the Teacher Leadership and Compensation Plan. And the goal was that 25% of Iowa teachers would be in a leadership role of some some kind. With that came a salary bump as much as $10,000 per leader for those that took on extra work, maybe 10 to 20 more days of contract time to develop quality professional development and and make sure that their fellow teachers had um, model examples in the classroom and instructional plans related to a more difficult curriculum. And as that bill worked its way through the House and Senate, there were some other provisions that went in there, too, that were, were really interesting. One of those created a second kind of homeschool. So it kind of talks about what our historian Chris said about that movement towards school choice, that um, that the there was a kind of homeschool where parents did not have to associate with the school district at all called independent private instruction. And we still have competent private instruction where homeschool parents work with um, teacher partners in the public school to help provide them with all the materials and instructional plans they need. Um, the other things that happened in that bill uh, included changing our concept of school funding from allowable growth which was the increase in the cost per student the legislature decided every year, to instead it's now called state supplementary assistance. I don't like that term. It sounds like it's just a little extra. It's supplemental more than the basic. And if we don't keep pace with the cost of inflation and the cost of doing the business of school, then our schools become less competitive in the marketplace for those um, those teachers and bus drivers and, and custodians and everybody that we need to make the school work. Okay. And spoiler alert, that is what has happened over the last four years, right? Absolutely. So, and, and, you know, we could look at 100 metrics here from 
teacher pay, where we're 38th in the nation in beginning teacher pay to those expenditures per pupil. Um, When we we see all those things, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that I know that our teachers on the ground today are working so hard with probably less resources than their counterparts had a generation ago. But our population of students has also changed. And we've gone from, you know, about 20% of our students on free and reduced price lunch in those early years in 2000, now to it's about 42%. And that that means that you have to provide more at the school level to create those equitable outcomes for students. So many of the policies that we've talked about today, um, you know, obviously we had Republican leadership through a lot of this Iowa history that we've covered with Governor Branstad, the longest serving governor in the United States. Um, but so much of it has been bipartisan. And Margaret, it feels like that has changed. Yes, it yes, it has. We have Republicans in charge of the House, the Senate, and the governor's office now. Um, in the last couple of years, there's been more of an emphasis on a couple of things, one of them very positive, and that's flexibility. So um, in the first education reform bill that Governor Reynolds had, she included the ability for um, repurposing some funds that were categorical to whatever, whatever the school boards thought was more important. And that's through that flexibility account. And I think that's brought some welcome relief to what was very heavy handed state control of how you had to spend some money. Um, So that's been a positive improvement. At the same time, we've seen some uh, more uh, state controlling directives, um, and many of them didn't get through the legislature on um, transparency of curriculum materials and how schools had to um, uh, communicate with parents in the local community. And there were some really tough discussions. And, and I think what it all goes to show you show you in this last legislative session, even though it's all Republicans in the House, Senate, and Governor's office, not all Republicans completely agree on that spectrum of what good policy is. So the, the school choice uh, debate is still ongoing, and I'm sure you're going to talk more about that tomorrow. Yes, yes, we are. So we have hear, heard a lot of rhetoric about how Iowa has fallen behind. You have shown us how economically we are not supporting schools in the same way that we used to support schools. We know that we are in this moment where schools have some unprecedented needs because of the pandemic and and other things. So uh, we're going to spend the, the next segment of the show talking about where we are now, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it in just the next minute or so. Uh, sure. From sure. your perspective. Yeah. yeah, two things. First of all, um, I and I think you'll hear this from the next speaker, you know, Iowa students aren't doing worse on that National Assessment of Education progress than they did in the 90s when we ranked in the top of the nation. Um, we've actually improved our, our, our math scores and our reading is about the same. So so part of that is just the misnomer of now how other states have done a little bit more, like Massachusetts investing in another 40 days of instruction for low-income students. Um, I think our formula is due for a rewrite to consider some of those equity needs of low-income um, English language learners. And we really have to figure out how do we invest in our staff in a way that will attract the best and brightest and get people interested in going to college to become teachers. Do you feel optimistic that we have the political will to do those important things? 
Um, you know, whenever there's an election, I always remain optimistic because legislators are willing to talk to folks about issues that are important to them. Um, we did see that teacher and para-registered apprenticeship grant program that Governor uh, Reynolds started this last year with some federal money that that is, you know, building, whole, grow your own kinds of programs for teachers. Um, I think there's a lot of energy around the issue. And um, if Iowans weigh in, I think their legislators will listen. Margaret Buckton, thank you so much. Margaret Buckton is a partner at Iowa School Finance Information Services. She's executive director of Urban Education Network and professional advocate for rural school advocates of Iowa. Coming up in a moment, we'll talk about how our public schools are performing right now. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Iowa Week, and school is in session. All week long, we're focusing on K-12 public schools in the state. Tomorrow, who gets to choose? We'll talk about the school choice movement and the push toward privatization. Right now, we're talking about who got us to where we are today. And actually, now we're going to focus on where we are today. Criticism and concern for public schools in Iowa is loud right now, and there are a lot of reasons for that that we will explore through the rest of the week. But we're going to try to look past that to really see how our public schools are performing. And to help us out, Jamie Vollmer is here, an author and president of Jamie Vollmer Incorporated, a public education advocacy firm based in Fairfield. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Charity. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for being here today. And Well, it's, it's my pleasure. How have you been in the intervening 11 years since we spoke last? <laughs> Pretty good, Jamie. And let's let's why don't we talk about the fact that it was, what, 2010 or 2011 last time we really talked about public schools in the state. Give us um, a comparison contrast. How does this moment feel in comparison to that moment, 2010? Well, uh, there's a little bit of the more things change, the more they stay the same, I suppose. Um, everybody needs to know at the outset, just so they're clear, I, I'm a promoter. I think public education is a miracle. I think it's one of America and Iowa's most precious resources. And as some may know or remember, uh, I didn't start out that way. I come from the world of business. I'm not an educator. And during... Uh, Governor Branstad's term, I got involved with the Iowa Business and Education Roundtable as a volunteer business person, and I was quite critical of our schools at the time. And it's the only way I listen to Chris and I listen to Margaret. I always get nervous following Margaret. She's got so much resource at her, so much information at her fingertips. But my understanding evolved over the course of the late 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, from being a critic to being someone who understands, I think, a little bit more the mechanics of what's going on in schools and particularly what's going on between schools and the communities they serve. So to be responsive to the question, the main difference between then and now, in, in my opinion, is that 
the relationship between schools and communities are is much more strained. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's changing demographics. I mean, maybe the most troubling statistic in my head is that only about a, a third at the most, and in Iowa, I think it's less, about a third of the taxpayers have children in school. Well, this immediately creates a distance between the people who actually pay for public education and, and, and the schools themselves. Uh, there's really good research. There's a poll by the Gallup organization, it's two years old, but it's still relevant, which shows how they ask people, how do you feel about public education? Well, nationally, it's a terrible number. I think it's under 26%. And then they say, well, how do you feel about public schools in your community? Well, then it jumps up to around 50%. And then they ask, well, how do you feel about your kid's school? And it's 75%. So the distance that's created between the people of Iowa and Iowa's public schools has left, in my opinion, a vacuum for all sorts of disinformation and misinformation about our schools. And as a result, it's, it's similar to 10 years ago, but it's much more intense right now, this, this tension between schools and communities. So the people who know the most about what's going on in public schools are the people who approve of them at the highest level, is what I'm hearing you say, Jamie. And I, I think that a lot of people think nostalgically about their education. As I was telling Margaret earlier, when I was growing up in the 1980s, we were constantly told that that the education system in Iowa was the best in the nation. And although, as she pointed out, schools were better funded in many ways in the 1980s, and there was definitely a correlation there. um, Do we all just think it used to be better when we were kids? Sure. And I have a name for that. But before I say that, I do want to say, Charity, you have to consider at least part of the demographic listening, because every time you say you grew up in the 1980s, I feel very, very old. (laughs) So, So here's the thing. Iowa's public schools are teaching more children in more subjects to higher levels in more creative and dynamic ways than ever before in our history. Chris mentioned in passing, in her very brief and brilliant review of the history, particularly of federal intervention, she mentioned about the the birth of the standards movement. And immediately we had this benchmark. And what human beings, I don't know if it's Americans or all human beings, we love box scores. Boy, do we like a box score. It's the best thing ever. And when we brought in standardized testing, now we had this very simple, simplistic box score so that the people could look down the list every time the new reports came out. And I know where you are right now. And they could look down the list and they look at their Iowa City schools and go, yes, we beat Cedar Rapids. I mean, it all became so simplistic. But if you disaggregate numbers, anytime you hear anybody saying it used to be better, ask them to disaggregate the numbers. In other words, Stop talking about averages, as Chris mentioned, and say, look, let's see how every group is doing. Let not only the groups of diversity, which you referenced, but even the five-fifths of the class. It turns out that every one of the five-fifths of the class are doing better on those standardized tests now 
than they were 10, 20, 50 years ago. And the, and the fact of the matter is what and you've used, a, you've used a term charity that I have kind of tweaked a little bit. I don't call it nostalgia anymore. I call it nostesia. Nostesia. 50% nostalgia, 50% amnesia. <laughs> Everybody thinks it used to be better in their schools. And the fact of the matter is, it wasn't. Were our schools, was public education in America more closely aligned with the needs of the American industrial economy? Absolutely true. And so people can leave the system and think, oh, look, we did so much better. But this is not a discussion about how the economy changed. Everybody knows the industrial economy is all but gone. And the schools, in some cases, go back to Margaret's discussion of money, struggle to keep up with the rapid transformation of the American economy. But if you want to compare apples and apples, our schools have never done better. So why do you think that schools are at the center of this debate right now and coming under so much criticism from some very vocal and powerful critics? Well, I won't go down the slippery slope of vocal and powerful clinics critics. I mean, in some cases, not to be cynical, public education is over a trillion dollar a year industry, so to speak. You know, I spent most of my adult life as an entrepreneur. That number makes my palms perspire. All you need to do is get a little piece of that with a system of private schools or virtual schools, and you have a very nice life. So there's definitely the piece about what their interests actually are. And then there's legitimate concerns from some quarters of the population about what's being taught in our schools, which again are fanned by media and social media. Think about it, Charity. Think about the social media 11 years ago when we last spoke. Very different animal. So it all comes back, however, that perhaps legitimate concern about what's going on in schools being inflamed by people who I believe in many cases have short-sighted self-interest at the, at the heart. All of that and the whole thrust of what I do in my business now is help school districts, public educators tell their story. Because the truth is, if you tell the story about public education, what you see is that the people of the community begin to change their relationship to their schools. They're not being fed on misinformation, disinformation, and sometimes outright lies. So get out, talk to the folks of your community. The one little wrinkle, many times when I talk, people think, oh, Jamie's talking about we need more community involvement. Well, back in the 90s, that was my focus. And I'm here to tell you that Americans are too busy to be involved in their schools. As an aside, I'm not talking about parents. We need all the parental involvement we can possibly get. I mean the general public, especially that large group I've already referenced that have no kids in school. They're not going to be involved. So involvement is to try to induce participation. What we can get is community engagement. And to engage people is just to hold favorable attention. And all you have to do is review what is actually going on in every public school from Sioux City to Burlington, look at what's really taking place 
and the public begins to move. It's just this vacuum. Uh, I'll, I'll shut up in a minute. A long time ago, Aristotle said, those who rule, those who tell the stories rule society. And I would argue that people are telling stories about public education are not true, and that the educators and their powerful supporters in business and in the clergy and the parents who send their kids to public school have to tell the story of what's really going on. That's, that sounds like a tall order, though, Jamie. I mean, a, a lot of the larger public school districts have their communications specialist, um, and, and a lot of that communication is communicating with parents. People in the community have to care, don't they, to learn about what's going on in the schools. Schools are taxed to the max in so many ways. Who has the time to tell these stories? Well... As an aside, and don't let me get too far off on this, I think you will remember that I started 25 years ago creating a list of all the things that have been added to the school calendar, both by the state government and the federal government, over the last 100 years. And when you and I spoke last, that list was an 8.5 by 11 trifold piece of paper. It is now an 11 by 40-inch poster that just never stops. So I totally get it. I am very aware of how everybody in our school system is dancing as fast as they can. So, and I also know that they don't have a lot of money for this engagement and approach. But in almost every community in Iowa, the staff certified, the professional staff and classified, the support staff, they are the largest employee group in almost every county in Iowa. And as a result, they have tremendous inherent power. I'm going around asking them, just tell your story. Just even simple things. Like I I joked the other day, we're now, as you said at the top, schools are back in session. But last June, all the schools in Iowa went out of session and almost every single sign out of almost every single school said something like, have a great summer. Have a safe summer. Or if you live in a community with a lot of overzealous helicopter parents, have an intellectually stimulating summer. <laughs> All right, Jamie, we're so, gonna we are gonna run out of time here. <laughs> so, okay. I do I'm I do wanna you, use your signs to tell them stuff is what I'm saying. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So uh, two things. I mean, one is that we have and we'll talk more about that than this week, too. But we have seen a movement of a lot of people who are really frustrated with public schools running for school board. And the people who tend to run for school board are the people who are unhappy. Those of us who are thrilled with our public schools, we are much less motivated to do something extra and actually run for public office. Is that a real stumbling block for our public schools? It is in the short run, but uh, you know my license plate says getting better. And I believe that in this case, the pendulum swings. We are at a place where people all of a sudden are perceiving school boards as a place to run and flex political muscle. But again, hearkening back to our history, yours and mine, at the time we spoke, there was an outfit out of San Diego called the Citizens for Educational Excellence. And they were hell-bent on controlling every school board in the country, and it didn't happen. I'm not saying that there won't be people running for school board 
who have the best interest of their constituency in mind as opposed to the best interest of kids. But I'm going to trust in democracy to balance that out. All right. And we've got a minute and a half left, Jamie. So tell me what gives you hope for our public education system in Iowa. Two aces up the sleeve. One is, and we, but we've talked about both of them. One is the more people know about their public schools, the more they like what they see. And that doesn't have to be the case. It could be that the more people know about their local public schools, the more they think they're awful. But they don't. They think the more the, they see them more upfront and personal, the more they like them and support them. And the second ace is that we have a story to tell. If public education were in fact failing, we would be in trouble. But again, we're doing a better job now than we have ever done. More kids in more subjects to higher levels. You can't compare then and now because nostalgia gets in the way. But if you slice through that and show the actual facts, then people are likely to say my magic sentence. Hey, I didn't know that. And as soon as that sentence is uttered, there's an open door to educate the community on what schools do. And not only that, how important public education is to the social vitality of a community. Jamie Volmer, thank you so much for talking with me today. Great to talk to you. We'll, we'll, I guess we'll talk again in 2033. <laughs> I'll put it on my calendar. Jamie Vollmer is an author and president of Jamie Vollmer Incorporated, a public education advocacy firm based in Fairfield. This is Iowa Week. School is in session and all week long we're focusing on K-12 public schools. Tomorrow... Who gets to choose? We'll talk about the school choice movement and the push for privatization. On Wednesday, we'll find out who's calling the shots. On Thursday, who's running the show. And on Friday, we're going to meet some kids. We'll find out who it's all for. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. This episode was produced by our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gear, and Samantha McIntosh. We had technical support today from Tony Sarabia. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa. Figure eight That's a circle that turns round upon itself One times eight Is two times four Four times four Is two times eight If you skate